Well, good morning. Uh, I want to take a quick moment before we jump into the sermon this morning. Um, as some of you might know or remember, about a month ago, so very end of February, we had a pancake fundraiser for the youth going to the district blitz. Um, and I want to acknowledge and thank you all for your generosity. Um, because of your giving, we were able to significantly reduce the costs of the student for, of going to that blitz event, which is coming up in two weeks, um, for the students that helped out. So just to give you like the, the physical numbers, it went from a $100 cost down to 60 Like that, That's a pretty big jump. And, it, and so I just want to thank all of you for, for giving and supporting the youth in that. Um, so it, it's, it's an, a great opportunity to be back up here this morning sharing God's word with all of you. So for those of you who don't know me, um, I'm the Associate Pastor of Discipleship here at uh, the Free Church. And um, if you don't know, nearly a year ago, my wife Faith and I moved from where we were living in Illinois to join this church. Now, if any of you have ever moved states, or say you went on a mission trip and had to get a passport, or you got married and had to change your last name, um, you know that at some point, you're going to have to go to a government official, or if you get a driver's license, you've got to go to the DMV, you've got to go to a government official to have your identity verified, and to be recognized, again, with a license, uh, as a resident of your new home state. However, you, you can't just show up and say, hey, you know what, I live here now. And, you know, it's, it doesn't work. You have to bring appropriate forms, approved to forms of identification to be officially recognized. Otherwise, you, you walk in and they're like, no, come back later. So just to give you a picture of this, my wife, Faith, and I experienced that. Um, we went into the DMV out here, and uh, you know we actually had to leave and come back because we did not have the right forms of identification. Well, our passage this morning starts out with the Pharisees trying to take on the role of the spiritual DMV of their day when they come to Jesus in Mark chapter 8. So this morning, we're going to be looking at another day in the life of Jesus. We're going to see how Jesus processes the circumstances of his day and how he teaches all his disciples to do the same. So open your Bibles with me, if you will, and follow along as we read Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 11. Again, Mark 8, verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit, this is Jesus, and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. So we're picking up this morning in Mark, in the life of Jesus, and Jesus had just finished doing another miracle. In almost a repeat of his miracle of feeding the 5,000, Jesus does it again. This time, multiplying seven loaves and a few small fish to feed 4,000 people. And the end result was seven full baskets of broken bread leftovers after everyone is already full. So after this has happened, he and the disciples jump into their boats and they head off to another town. They head off to the district of Dalmanutha. And when he arrives, the Pharisees are ready. The religious authorities are ready for him. 
So they come to test Jesus, and they ask him for a sign from heaven. Now, this isn't just a request for any miracle. They're asking for a very specific kind of miracle. They're asking for God to open up the heavens and declare for them for all time that Jesus is exactly who he claims to be. See, what they're saying is they want to see his official, religiously approved forms of identification. In other words, they're coming up to Jesus and saying, ID, please. But Jesus' response to the Pharisees is very different than what we might expect. Instead of having his fa- God the Father open up the sky and say, this is my son, listen to him, which, spoiler alert, um, he's going to do with his disciples in the very next chapter. But instead of granting that to the Pharisees, Jesus sighs from the depths of his spirit, refuses, and leaves. Now think about this request in today's terms. Let's say you work at a bank, and somebody you've never seen before came in asking to withdraw a million dollars. You would probably want to see some ID, and rightfully so. Now say, instead of showing their ID, they refuse. What would you think? You'd probably think they aren't who they claim to be, but are in reality a fraud and someone not to be trusted. So on the surface, the Pharisee's request seems a lot like a bank teller asking somebody for ID. It seems innocent and legitimate. And Jesus' response seems to make him out to be a fraud. So so why did Jesus respond like he did? Here's the first reason. And if you're taking notes this morning, this would be the first point. Evidence alone cannot change hearts. Now, if you've been walking with, or if you've been with us as we've been walking through the book of Mark, you'd probably remember that Jesus has been openly doing miracle after miracle, and each one has been pointing back to his identity as the Son of God. The evidence is building up. And it's getting to the point where Jesus' opposition can't deny his miracles. The proof is right there in front of them. But the question is, what will they do with the evidence of Jesus' true identity that they've already seen? Will they respond and believe that Jesus is who he claims to be, or will they reject him? Now, In this particular situation, the answer is actually in the request the Pharisees have made. See, they've already made their choice. So they come to Jesus with a specific intent. They want to prove themselves right. In their mind, he is not God. See, no sign that Jesus could have done at this point would have changed the Pharisees' desire to follow him. Their hearts were hardened against him. The evidence alone would not have changed their hearts. So Jesus refuses to give them the sign that they had asked for, because he knew it wouldn't change them. But there's a second reason as well. 
Jesus knew that even if he had answered them how they wanted, if, if he had granted them their request, it would not have resulted in the kind of relationship that God wants to have with us. Here's the second point. God wants followers who respond in love to his son, not a forced union. All right, everybody imagine with me, if you will, that you're a high schooler. Now, some of you high schoolers are out there like, done! All right, everybody else who got that? High schooler. Okay, now imagine one day your parents come up to you and tell you that, you know what, they've been doing a lot of thinking. And they have arranged for you to be married when you graduate. Though you haven't met this person, they've already selected that guy or girl, and they've even put together a comprehensive list of all the reasons why you should marry them. What would your first reaction be? It would probably sound a little bit like this. But I don't love them. Why? Because information alone does not equal love. See, if Jesus had given the Pharisees what they asked for and revealed himself in a way that they had to acknowledge that he was who he claimed to be, the end result would have been like forcing someone into a loveless marriage. They could go through the motions, do all the stuff, but their hearts wouldn't be in it. In other words, the relationship would look a lot more like forced labor like, than it would a loving marriage. But what God wanted for them and for us all is to come to know Jesus and respond to his love with all that we are. Our hearts, our minds, our souls, everything. And in the process, to grow to know and love him so much that the best way to describe it is through the picture of a loving marriage. So I'm going to throw up some four different categories just just to think about this morning. What would best describe your relationship with God right now? Are you opposed to the very idea that Jesus might be the God he claims to be? The second one. Are you open to a relationship with God, but do you want it on your own terms? Third. Are you in a relationship with God where everything you do is out of duty? And fourth one. Are you in an intimate relationship with God where everything is a response of love to him? See, Jesus doesn't condone where the Pharisees are, but he does graciously offer them another opportunity to respond to his love. In the parallel passage of this exact same encounter, In Matthew 16, Jesus tells the Pharisees that they will receive no sign except the sign of Jonah. Now, if you guys know Jonah from the Old Testament, Jonah was sent as a prophet to the Assyrians. And if you 
think about the Assyrians, think about them in terms of the terrorists of his day. In other words, Jonah was sent to ISIS, to Al-Qaeda. And he's sent with a message. You can come and enter into a relationship with God, or you can continue where you are, and judgment is coming. Now is your chance to respond. What do you do? You can continue to reject God, or will you repent and believe in him? Jesus is offering the same opportunity to the Pharisees. In that moment, Jesus graciously offered them the opportunity to respond to him with love, and he leaves them to ponder their response. But Jesus' challenges don't just end with the Pharisees. Jesus sets off with his disciples back across the Sea of Galilee, and as he does, he takes the opportunity to train his disciples and challenges them to apply what they just experienced. So let's keep reading. We'll start at Mark 8, verse 14. This is Mark 8, 14. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, again, Jesus, Watch out, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? So there Jesus is. He's sitting on a, in the boat with his 12 disciples. They're on a road trip back across the Sea of Galilee. And he sees the opportunity to challenge his disciples to really think about and apply what had just happened in their day. So he speaks up and gives a serious warning. Watch out! Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, remember, Jesus had just fed 4,000 people by miraculously multiplying seven loaves earlier that day. So the image of bread would still be fresh in their minds. And he gives them a little bit more to chew on. Yes, puns intended. All right. He uses the image of leaven, or yeast, spreading throughout bread to call his disciples to understand and guard against the damaging teaching and beliefs of the Pharisees and Herod, and not letting them spread in their lives. This also calls his disciples, and us as well, to understand and hold tight to what it is that Jesus offers. So what exactly was the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod? Let's start with the Pharisees. 
Jesus has had many encounters with the Pharisees in the book of Mark already, including in our passage this morning. Yet in almost every one, the primary complaint of the Pharisees is this. The external behavior of Jesus and his disciples. Here's one of the complaints that they brought to Jesus in Mark 7, 5. Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders and eat with defiled hands? In other words, the Pharisees are saying, why don't you and your disciples behave like we tell you to? See, for the Pharisees, they believed that God's primary concern in relating with his people was how well they performed for him. In other words, if they just followed the rules, then they were righteous before God and could go about their lives as they saw fit. They thought that because God's primary concern was how well they behaved, all they had to do was make sure they performed the way they were supposed to, follow the law. So logically, they took it the next step. If we, if we just have to not break the law, let's create a barrier so that we don't. So what they did is they created extra rules and traditions that would act as a buffer for them so that if they did break any rules, it was theirs and not God's. But here's the challenge and the subtle shift that, has, that had taken place. They had reduced a relationship with God to moralism, and they were teaching others to do the same. See, moralism says that we can be declared a righteous person or, or a good person based on how well we behave. And it's the belief that the fundamental problem in our lives is that we just need, how to, just need to learn how to behave better. So if we teach and train others with the right information and help them to get into the habit of following it, then we can fix ourselves and be good. But here's the deal. This focus really has nothing to do with God and everything to do with us. Our behavior is all on us. In essence, we believe that we can become good enough on our own and really have no need to have God in our lives. And here's, here's what's, the, what's worse in the middle of all of this. It, it doesn't work. Have you ever tried to eat healthy only to come home and to discover an open package of Oreos sitting out? What happens? You want to eat them. And more often than we would like to admit, we do. See, moralism tells us that if we just got rid of all of the Oreos in the world, heaven forbid, but if we only got rid of all of the Oreos in the world, then we would never want one, and all our problems would be solved. But the real problem is not the Oreo itself, but it's the desires that come up in our own hearts. And this is true if we have a relationship with God, or a follower of Jesus, or not. 
James 4.1 puts it this way. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? James was addressing Christians. See, the real problem is that when we turned away from God, our love turned away from God and back onto ourselves. Our focus became how we can love ourselves better. And it plays out in every area of our life, from how we respond to God all the way down to our choice of eating Oreos when we want to be healthier. It's all about how are we loving ourselves. But see, here's the kicker. We can't fix our hearts. Only God, by opening our eyes to his love for us, the love that he showed in dying on the cross in our place and offering the opportunity for us to come into his family as adopted children, drawing us to himself more and more through the power of his Holy Spirit, only he can heal and change our hearts. And he wants to do this. It's the reason that Jesus came. He came so that we might know the amazing depths of God's love for us, so that we can respond with all of our hearts, souls, minds, strength, and to call others to do the same. So Jesus is calling us all to watch out, to be on guard against that easy and subtle shift to teaching moralism instead of having a loving relationship with God. He's warning against focusing on what people do, on their outward behavior, instead of calling them to consider why they're doing what they do and appointing them to the God who can change their hearts and meet their needs. So here's two application questions for us to consider this morning. First, are you more concerned with what people do or why people do it? So if you're a parent, here's, here's kind of an example for you this morning. When your kids are misbehaving, what's the first thing that you focus on? What, what's your priority? Is it to help them learn how to not do it again? Or is it to help them understand the desires that are going on in their hearts and call them to know God, to call them back to, okay, how does this relationship with God impact this moment right now? It's the same thing for us. When we're in a place where we feel like we're misbehaving, is our first concern, how do we fix the behavior? Or is it to understand what's going on inside of our hearts and come back to Jesus and say, you know what, forgive me, change my desires. Help me to know you and love you more. So here's the second application question. Are you more concerned with what you do or why you do it. So, all right, the leaven of the Pharisees is moralism. But what about the leaven of Herod? Now, to answer this question, we can turn back to Mark 6, 21 through 23. And here's what it says. But an opportunity came when Herod, was, when Herod on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in, and danced, uh, came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. 
And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask, I will give it, up to half my kingdom. See, here we're getting a little snapshot into the picture of Herod's character. For Herod, the primary concern was doing what would make him feel good. If it was money, power, his reputation, a good-looking spouse, a pretty girl, it didn't really matter. If it made him feel good, it was okay. And we hear this today a lot too, don't we? If it's right for you, do it. Just make sure you don't hurt someone else in the process. Unless, of course, that means that you won't feel good, in which case, yeah, it's actually okay. So in Herod's case, he believed that it was all right to have someone killed, but not all right to go back onto his word, because to do so would make him look bad in front of his guests. And so we see him having John the Baptist put to death in verses 26 and 27. At its very core, the leaven of Herod is worldliness. As long as you look good in the eyes of others and and feel good, you can consider yourself a good person. And if you don't, you can always find somebody else who has done worse things than you. You know, you may have had one person put to death, but not hundreds of thousands, so you're still a good person, right? Now here we need to step back a moment. Jesus warns his disciples about the leaven of Herod in the same breath that he warns them about the leaven of the Pharisees. Jesus is putting them both on the same level. And here's why. Worldliness believes what makes someone a good person is how they act. That sounds a lot like moralism, doesn't it? See, the main difference between worldliness and moralism is that moralism comes packaged in religious language, and worldliness does not. But at the very core, they're the same. They both believe that our actions are the problem, but at our core, we're really just good people. We just don't behave like we should. Yet Jesus wants all of his disciples to recognize that the real problem, the root of the problem, is our desire to put ourselves first. And the real solution is not in learning how to behave better, but it can only be found when we give up that desire to put ourselves first and respond to his love and healing. See, God wants so much more for us than a moralism that just sort of covers the surface issues. He wants us to have a relationship with him, to know and experience real and deep love that can be found in him, to know his healing, to know his care, to know his purpose for us, and to walk with him each and every day of our lives. And we can, if we we turn and respond to his love, if we respond to him. So as Jesus is pouring all of this out, 
using another bread illustration to teach his disciples, what happens? The disciples turn to each other and start discussing the fact that they forgot to pick up McDonald's on the way out of town. See, Jesus is talking about spiritual realities, and the disciples are looking at this physical reality right in front of them. They have one dinky little loaf, and they have 13 guys in a boat. It's not going to go very far. Now, we could be hard on the disciples. I mean, after all, they just saw Jesus doing this miraculous bread multiplication right in front of them. But aren't we in the same boat as the disciples? Thinking the same things more often than we would like to admit? We hear from God. We walk out of church. We finish reading our Bible. And and not five minutes later, we forget what we heard or read. And we're on to that next thing. Whether it's thinking about lunch or or Oreos or or all the things that you have or, or you want to do that day. The reality is, so often we revert back to the physical concerns in front of us. That physical stuff. But we forget to hold on to and care for the spiritual matters. Yet Jesus is there, and he wants his disciples, and us too, to realize that he cares for both the physical needs and the spiritual needs. So he challenges the twelve. He asks some questions to get them thinking. Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive and understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? And then, then he takes them right back to the physical and points them to their greater need, understanding who he really is. So he calls them to think back to the two times that he has taken a small amount of bread and fed thousands, where he's cared for their physical needs. And each time, each time, they had baskets full of leftovers, first 12 and then seven. He took care of their physical needs abundantly, much more than they could have asked. And in doing so, he starts pointing them to two realities. First, Jesus would and could take care of their physical needs. He could take care of the lack of food that they had. He had already done it that morning. He could, he could do it again. But second, he was giving them an opportunity to reflect on who he is. See, in John 6, after Jesus had just finished feeding the 5,000, he makes a startling statement And he wants his disciples to remember it again. He said that he is the bread of life. He is the one who we can trust with our lives to care for all of our needs, the physical and the spiritual. Jesus offers a firm foundation for our lives, solid hope and trust and hope, love and purpose. And it's found in him. And the reason why is because he is God. He never changes. He never fails. And always loves. 
So he ends with a question. Do you not yet understand? In other words, this, this is who I am. Will you trust me? It's the same question for us this morning. Do we trust him? Will we lay aside our worries, lay aside our desire to live life on our own terms, and trust him to take care of every part of our lives? It doesn't mean that there won't be hurt and pain, but it does mean he will be there with us in it. Will we let God be God in our lives? So where do we go from here? How can we respond? First, if you've never surrendered your desire to be the God of your own life and have trusted your life to Jesus and you want to, come talk to me. Come talk to Pastor Ken. Come talk to one of the elders here at the church. They're the guys that are always up here doing announcements. We would love to talk with you. Second, if you've already put your trust in Jesus, Continue to trust God and apply what he has revealed about himself to your own life and encourage others to do the same. Because so often we we walk away and we forget, all of us, myself included. Make a commitment this week to regularly set aside a time in your day or, or in your week and talk with someone else about what God is teaching you so that you don't forget and you remember to apply it. It could be with your family after church in the car. It could be with a friend or neighbor. It could be in a DNA group. Or it could be with a coworker or, or students. It could be with a classmate over lunch. Whatever it is or looks like, take that first step and share what God has done and is continuing to do in your life. Do what it takes to heed the warning Jesus has given us, his disciples. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. Love him, the bread of life. Let's pray.